Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. It's September. We made it through the summer. I don't know whether I'm excited for this time of year or sad to see the summer pass, but I know that I'm glad to have to stay home for a few nights in a row, always in September. I know. It always feels a little bit like the calm before we ramp up again and head off to Wigtown for that festival and some more events and excitement and activity down there. Yeah, it's like a good three weeks to catch your breath always. So, But I try not to think too hard on it in that first week in September because I always have kind of festival fatigue and exhaustion of loving and sort of buzzing of seeing everyone and all the things that we've heard about and read about and see, you know listened to. But also like I just need to be in a room on my own and get back to basics. I always feel like you know that back to school should be back to basics, you know. Getting all the pencils sharpened in the office. <laughs> I wonder if we'll keep doing that even though, you know, when our kids are out of school, whenever that is, um, and I've only got two going in this year, but, you know, I wonder if we'll keep having that feeling in September of got to get all our pencils out and get them sharpened and kind of back to an ordinary way of things, at least for the next few weeks until we get to the Wake Town Book Festival, which is another highlight in our open book year. Yeah, I, I still feel like September has a bit of the summer because we sometimes get that sneaky week of really lovely weather. And of course, it's the best time of year to swim. Yes, you're right. Because the water is warm still. It's at its warmest often in September. So come on, universe. We want really warm. And as you say, you get that sneaky bit of sunshine. So it feels almost tropical. Somehow Scotland is rotten for poor students. It's beautiful in May and beautiful in September. But yeah, let's hope that we'll get some swims in. And then we'll, we'll get some in in Wigtown anyway when we go. We always get a big group swim in and quite often a few sneaky ones in between events as well. And this year at the festival, we're launching our pamphlet, which will include lots of stories of all of our groups right across the country so we hope you'll look at our newsletter and tune into that i can't wait to see it that moment when you get it in your hands when the box arrives from the printers and you you get to hold uh, the work of the year in your hands is just lovely so i'm looking forward to celebrating that in wigtown and so many voices in one place it's different than holding a book of your own i think in some ways because you get to celebrate so many other voices and some of the poems are group poems which means everyone in the group has helped write the one poem so if you think about how many voices are in that volume it really feels like a lovely thing to put together it really feels like the community that we set out to create and it feels appropriate that our theme this month is yarn Although we should say neither of us knits. I was more thinking of the, the other meaning of yarn and as in spinning a yarn and telling a yarn and how that was kind of nice for our pamphlet coming out. So today we've got a story from Alex Penland, How to Read the Lace, and a poem from Georgie Gill. It's a shorter story than normal, but maybe you could stop somewhere along the way and we can have a bit of a chat. It's a potholder, hidden in the story that it tells the light corner char, the skipped stitch repaired with a repeat in the next row, there are instructions. Chain 30, turn. Six blocks of six double crochet stitches, turn. Carl's mother made it, says Grams. She likes that I'm looking so closely. Right when we first got married. My fingers trace a textile diary. Here, where the yarn came undone a bit, and she left a strand to look behind the weave, the subtle fray that peeks behind the weaves, where she wove in the ends, the uniform cotton. I always liked it, said Grams. 
Looks light, but I've had the darn thing 50 years and it never wore down. Lace is like that. It's pretty, but it's tough. My favourite thing in the world is to watch a friend when I pull and stretch at a recent creation. They react like I've dropped expensive glass on a stone floor. Crochet doesn't care. It's not even like it has to bounce back. The stretch gets it where it needs to be. Think you can copy it? Grams asks. The pattern is simple. I have never seen my great-grandmother's hands, but mine mimic hers now. Six blocks more, skipping a stitch in the middle, six blocks again the next row, then chains and singles to even out the squares. She died long before I was born. I didn't know much about her, only the pattern of the cloth. I wonder, would she like me? Me, who never goes to church, who doesn't believe in God. Me, who's dated women and moved across the world. Shall we stop there for a moment? Yeah. It's just a beautiful piece of writing. That last question for me is such a huge one. What would the generations above you make of your decisions or the life that you're living? And the things that we project onto that generation as to what we think they would consider important. You know, I remember when I was pregnant, must have been with my third or fourth child. It would have been my third. I remember my grandmother, my Persian grandmother, who had, had lots of children herself, was surprised I was pregnant. I remember being surprised at her surprise. And she was kind of like, you know, you women these days don't have to have so many children. <laughs> Which I thought was a really funny response from a woman who had so many herself. Because, you know, the assumption would be that she would she would welcome a similarity in her granddaughter and the idea of a big family. And, you know, we always kind of, as you say, project that image of whatever we, th- we see back onto people, assuming that that's what they wanted and that's what they would approve of. But in her case, not so at all. And particularly as a kind of relatively religious Muslim woman, you know, I assumed she would think that was a good thing. And, and of course, she loved all her children and was an incredible mother and an incredible businesswoman. But, you know, her response wasn't, ah, that's terrific. You're having a large bustling family. It was like, you know, you don't have to do that, right? Which I thought was funny and not what I, not what I thought she would say. I'm intrigued by you saying she was a businesswoman. What, what was her business? What did she do? When she got married, they were living on a farm and the family lost the farm, her husband's family. And so they moved to Tehran and I think I don't know when, but she eventually got herself a store in the Grand Bazaar and was a shopkeeper, sold, I think, clothing. But it was her store and eventually it passed to her sons who ran it for her. But ultimately she was the one who supported the family with her business and she was quite astute at that, even though she was a quietly spoken woman, a mother of six living children. One had passed away, so seven in total. You wouldn't have necessarily known that about her, but she was a businesswoman too. And she, when she passed away, she had flats and, you know, I should have known to expect something different from her than I thought, if that makes sense. And presumably that would have been really unusual to have a own, your own store in a bazaar as a woman at that time. I think so. And I suspect, although I don't, I could ask, but I don't know the exact details. But my guess is that she probably only did that in earnest when her husband passed away. Ah, uh, okay. You know, because she was a widower, that was easier. I don't, I, re- I don't know what she did necessarily when he was alive, when, I, when we were there. I feel like they did have, it was probably theirs, but you know, it was always referred to in our family as her shop. And then, you know, my uncles then went to work in her shop and kind of 
to, you know, ran it for her as she got older. And then the same with her properties as well. So, you know, in, in places like Iran, property is a great place to put your money, not the bank, because with inflation being so uncertain, you never know what will happen to your savings. It could be worthless. Whereas a piece of property is always worth something or jewelry or gold if you have the, the means to keep it safe. It's a different kind of ma- way of managing your life. Or at least that's how I understood it. I could be wrong seeing it from a distance again, you know, we project what we think onto things. But that's exactly what I thought of, you know, in this last line of their story, which is, would their great-grandmother approve? And I think what we assume the answer is, isn't always right. Yeah. Also, the things that they've put in here as um, things that they might not approve of, going to church, dating women, moving across the world, tell us a lot about how life has changed, I think, for newer or younger generations or and what they can do and what what opportunities are open to them. Thinking back to my American family, I'm not sure what my American family generations back would have made of my decisions now. There's a part of me that thinks, you know, wants to think that generations ago, they would have been pleased with the freedoms that certainly our generation have, but certainly the ones coming behind us have. I'm not sure. What would your great granny have made of it, of what you're doing just now? My gran—I don't really know my great granny. I never did, but my granny was a real matriarch of the family, so she was very much putting forward the idea that you should go out and make the most of the opportunities, and you've only got one life, and don't listen to what anyone else says or thinks. You go off and do your own thing, but as long as she approved of it, <laughs> I was waiting for that. Yeah. So she she would talk a good game, but if you were doing something that she thought was inappropriate or not right she wouldn't be very happy for it. I remember she was very obvious in her favorites she was very generous to everyone but she definitely had you know slightly the extra pancake went to one grandchild over the others and and looking back I suspect that was possibly only because that person was the one that was the tidiest and the neatest. I think it takes one person in every family to kind of break the mold a little and then it makes it easier for everyone else to follow on. So, you know, my own mum left a tiny town in Ohio um, to go all the way to California and then even worse, you know, eloped and went somewhere where I believe my grandparents really had to get out the map and figure out where the heck she was going. Didn't know what to expect when she went to Iran. And so, you know, in some ways, I think my grandparents would have expected my brother and my generation to go wild, you know, because, you know, she'd already done it. She'd already gone and done the thing that nobody else was doing. So I guess it would be hard if you were the generation that did that breaking of the mold. And I remember my mum saying that she didn't speak to her parents for a whole year or possibly probably they didn't speak to her out of fury that she'd gone off and done this thing and gone off and halfway around the world. But then, you know, after that, almost everything is easy. Or certainly my grandparents never blinked when I moved, you know, to Europe and just didn't, you know, they were like, of course, because you're her child. But that said, you know, my mummy still says, you know, when I told you to go off and see the world, I never meant don't come back. So your mum was the one that beat the path. And then culture helped, right? Because my dad was also the one that went off and beat the path in his family. But as the oldest child, oldest boy in a big Iranian family, he was the favoured one, the oldest son, the important one, the one who helped support them. So when he came back with an American wife, nobody could say boo to him. 
even though it wasn't done. Of course, it wasn't the done thing, but everybody just got on with it. So I think in some ways, you know, having the generation above you break the molds means it's easier. But I think those are things still within the realms of what people did. I think, you know, generally, I think the question at the end of or the part where you stopped is, is much more about breaking down other kinds of concerns about who you date or religion or, you know, where you live. Those are bigger questions, I think. You know, I'm not sure either of my parents would have openly addressed or questioned the religion of the family. But now I don't think we'd blink twice or think twice about it. Thinking back to my parents, I think they really had a very strong sense of wanting us to be happy. And I mean, I mean, not just paying lip service to that, because of course we also want our children to be happy. But I do think that there's very little that we could have done that they would have disapproved of if we were doing it because we thought it was something we wanted to do, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And with the recognition that every decision comes with its own set of qualifications or costs or whatever. So... But I think that maybe comes from their experiences of both having to make life choices that were slightly put upon them and maybe not their first choice. I'm thinking of my mum being the first person from the family to go and in fact from the village she grew up in, I think, to go off to university, but doing an ordinary degree, not an honours degree because she kind of needed to quickly you know, get her degree and become a teacher and start earning some money. Where, you know, I remember in her later years, she said, oh, one of these days I'm going to go back and do a master's or, you know, do that honours year I never got to do. And I think that my mum is the same. So it says that about that generation. Both my parents were the first to go but to university. But my mum, you know, as, as enlightened as my grandpa was, letting her go, she was given two options. She could be a nurse or a teacher. He wasn't paying for anything else. Um, and that was the difference. You did have to pay for it. So she, she opted for it and she said she wanted to be a doctor. And he said, no, that's not a woman's place. So she was a nurse, you know, but she did, you know, have the opportunity when I left home to go back to university and then went and did law, uh, which she really enjoyed. But yeah, as you say, they were within certain constraints, whereas I, don't, I think our generation had less of them. And I, my, my hope is that like our children's generation will have even less of them. But just going back to the story, I love this idea that there's a, you know, and that we all have these objects. We hope we all have these objects in our house that either remind us are actually of the person being handed down, or at the very least remind us of something about them. You know, there is that connection between generations or people, they don't have to be your family, with an object somehow. But I wouldn't have guessed it would be lace. I don't know anything about lace. No, except that it looks to me, well, it, the it's described as, as being like crocheting or crochet stitches or whatever. And I've seen crocheting done and I've even had a very unsuccessful go at crocheting. Um, I just don't have the patience for it or the coordination in my fingers. Shall we read on and see what happens? Yeah, let's do that. Repeat until it's the size you like, she tells me. Then do it all again on another panel. Black sheep of this side of the family me. Fasten them together, she says. Academic me, spinster me. Single crochet around the edges, she says. Pico, make it lovely. Everything needs a little grace. I'm holding the lace in my hands. My great-grandmother's original is on the left, yellowed and softened with time. Mine is on the right, crisp and white and clean. Hers removed my father's first birthday cake from the oven. It has saved a dozen tables from the heat of Christmas dinner. I wrap them up in colored paper. 
When Grams opens her present, she immediately goes to the kitchen and stores them on the hooks by the oven. Dinner is cooking. This year, we'll protect the table together. I love the idea that the lace is a way of stitching parts of yourself together. Mm. You know, fasten them together and that the next line, academic me and Spencer me, that idea that you can somehow connect yourself with these really delicate things, but that are actually quite hardy and can withstand the heat. You know, that metaphor works beautifully for me. And the idea as well, or the thought for me, that although you're doing the panels and technically they'll be the same or should be the same, each one will just have a slight difference in it. Whether the thread has got a little bit, your hands were sweaty when you were working it and there's a little bit of discoloring or one drop stitch or you've, you know, stretched it slightly further in one place than the other. So they are uniform pieces, but each one has its own little individual aspects to it. Which is, you know, again, fills that metaphor beautifully but then I also love the Graham's response which is to take it and put it right next to the other one not the we're going to keep this one for good or you know but actually let's just stick it next to the other one because it's going to be in use in in a matter of minutes because I'm all for that thing of let's use things you know let's use them let's not keep things for good because we never know when that will be you know and I have my I know my mum has an entire cabinet and mom, if you're listening, you have an entire cabinet of things you don't use because you're frightened they'll break. But then nobody's ever used them. My mum knows that when she gives me the things in that cabinet and they are destined for me, I will use them, which is probably why they're still in the cabinet. She's frightened I'll break them too. I feel the same about clothes. And sometimes I'll come into the office, as you know, and I'll have a dress on for no apparent reason other than the fact that I think that's a pretty dress and I want to wear it. When will I if I don't put it on today? So You'll be glad to know, listeners, that she never comes in in heels. No, I That's don't. That's where we draw the line. <laughs> exactly. Like you, you, you are always more beautifully dressed than me. Um, and that wouldn't take a lot of doing, let's just say. But yeah, I feel like that about everything. I think eat the ice cream every day, you know, live it to its fullest, especially after the few years we've had. We might as well, you know, go out and taste and enjoy and be with friends and things. And also use all the china. I love that that idea as well in the story of that you get that sense of history following through. So that same potholder removed the father's first birthday cake from the oven and it will be the one that sits on the Christmas table this year. Yeah, and the fact that it's slightly burned or whatever is okay. You know, I love that idea that we don't I think Americans are terrible for getting rid of things and getting new ones. I mean, I'm much more keen to hold on to things, even though they're slightly imperfect. That said, I don't like a chipped mug. There you go. I, I will store that away and remember it. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite mug has a chip in it and I'm thinking, hmm, will I get another one? <laughs> it's really annoying every time I drink from it. So, But apart from that, I'm happy for... If it was a chip on the other side of the mug, it would be fine. But you know what you would have to do to justify getting your new one? You'd have to break the one you've got at the moment and put it in the bottom of one of your pots in the garden that you have of herbs and use the broken bits as drainage. Yeah, there and you go. And then you would feel justified that you're not wasting something it's a mug that i'm um it has a lobster on it and i i bought it with the money from my second poem that i ever got money for because it was about a lobsterman and so i'm 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 partial to the mug i tend to put them on my desk and make them pencil holders instead because you know when i when i break a mug because i don't want them to be gone particularly this one shall we move on to the poem Yeah, this is a poem by Georgie Gill, who is a terrific writer and has a collection out with Blue Diode. She's also part of the 12 Collective that I write with, so I'm just 
admitting my connection, um, rejoicing in my connection with Georgie. But I can tell you ahead of time, we're going to love this poem, Imitating Rousseau. Do you want me to read it, Claire? Yeah, why don't you? Okay, it's called Imitating Rousseau. I am surrounded by sketches of parrots, and you, tarp-stained, tarps-stain, tarpentine, you are experimenting with Rousseau's tiger and explaining. Rousseau, and possibly the tiger, was self-taught and primitive. Primitive. All art, you say, is imitation. I just copy, experiment with new words, feel safe with birds, daubing parrot sketches with watercolor paints. That color is called ochre. 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 This parrot is cobalt blue and sunshine yellow, its beak a stern black. That parrot is a macaw. Macaw. Ma. Call, ma, call. Stretching my arms like wings, I scatter the paint blocks, bright and wet on the floor. My brush pecks a cobalt pan, combs my hands, tints my arms, my back, then splashes a perfect yellow sun across my front, grooms me into life, into color. My call, ma, call. My voice is sharper now, my mouth hardens and hooks. I stretch, wind my neck out, cleaving vertebra from vertebra. My toes turn into claws, grabby, scuttling on the parquet floor. Parrot, parquet, parrot, parquet. My fingers fuse. Blue arm hair thickens, branches into feathers, into wings, spread wide, gifted, strong. Macaw, macaw, macaw. So much sound in that poem, isn't there? (laughs) I love the repetition of the sounds and they're all in italics and each, some of them slightly change. So I would recommend going to look at the poem on our bumper issue. But it feels like, you know, it's the parrot sound, the parrot repeating things over and over again. And I think as well, it makes you slow down and think and pronounce the way they're written in a way that's quite interesting. Well, it's probably a bit like I was thinking that's maybe what a parrot's doing when it's repeating things. It's feeling the sound in their mouth rather than having any sense of what they actually mean. Mm, And it reminded me a bit of a child acquiring language, you know, just trying, as you say, trying it out, feeling the sound, trying it in different ways. And learning about, it's obviously someone's telling them about Rousseau and the parrot and the tiger and other things, but I love that transformation towards the end of the poem, that idea that they become the parrot by engaging with it in some way. It feels like a description of what happens when, when we read stories or when we consider poems, you know, we somehow become, get in them and become them. I love the description of the, that transformation because sometimes you're, you're in it so quickly or you slip into it without noticing, but you're really, I think, noticing in this poem that sort of shift from, or the gift that I feel poetry and reading gives me is that it takes me out of my own world and almost gives me a respite and a bit of a break and a chance to be somewhere different. But that you get a real sense of that sort of shift in this, in the way this is written, I think. Yeah, and I think we chose it because it connects 
with the story so well and the idea of someone teaching you something and creating something. And in this poem, the speaker is painting or learning to paint. And although at one point I wondered if they were writing, you know, experimenting with new words, but creating something anyway, and then becoming, stitching bits together and then becoming something else. But it just does it in a completely different way, you know, whereas we're embodied in the parrot at the end, whereas in the story, you know, we're back out and we're stitching lace bits together and then we're back out admiring them. Georgie leaves us as a parrot, I think, with fingers fused and with wings spread wide. But it feels incredibly positive. And I think the word, the use of the word gifted and strong as well, but particularly for me, gifted really reinforces that sense of the pleasure in being left as a parrot. Not, there's no panic. There's no worry. There's no, how will I get back to make the dinner tonight? It's a gift to have that escape and that time out. But tell me about Rousseau's Tiger. It's not a reference I know. I think it's just, I don't know it particularly well, but I think it's just a particular painting Ah. that's well known. But I was going to say the middle bit, I thought that the person in in the poem had knocked the paints off, you know, and was just annoyed you know, stretching arms, you you scatter paint blocks and cobalt and the brush like runs a big bite of thing of yellow down the front of her because it then runs into my voice is sharper now. And I thought she was annoyed, but in fact, uh, it's the opposite. It's a kind of transformation. So I love, I love moments in poems where I could go either way. And it feels like it's that incident, that moment, that second in time that allows the transformation to happen. And that's true in life generally, isn't it? It's those moments where you could go either way. You could, uh, you know, you transform for sure at moments of shift rather than just, well, you know, like we discussed in last month's podcast, you transform at particular moments, not usually just growing into them. Yeah. And what you can't see when you're listening to us is that even some of the way that the line, lines break leave you with kind of sharp beak-like little bits um, along the right-hand margin. So there are little little sharp bits, which feels like it also mimics the shape of what Georgie's saying here. Right before my voice is sharper now, the lines all go down in a kind of quite sharp bit, which is lovely. And that changes and becomes more frequent or more pronounced as you become more like a parrot and get further, further down the poem. But I love as well, you know, it's something I've noticed in other poetry, but that interweaving of art and poetry or music and poetry or where you bring two creative outlets together and sort of weave them together in the writing and it feels that Georgie does that really effectively here you get a real sense of the painter in the story of the poem as it were yeah exactly and that idea that not only is the person speaking being taught but that we are you know something about things here but actually we're kind of tricked into that because we think yeah, I know what turpentine is and I know what ochre is and things, but actually, you know, what we're learning is that we're being set up or sucked into that idea of we're learning, we're learning. And actually what we're learning is that we can also transform with just a paintbrush and a bit of will, or we can just transform by lit, by reading this poem. We don't even have to do the work of getting the paintbrushes out, you know, by reading the poem, we're tra- we learn that we can transform into a bird as well. We're with that person's voice and in that strong, strong, wide wings at the end, we are also transformed, which I love. And for me as well, there's a real sense in this poem of at the start of being an observer or of the eye being an observer. So they're watching, you know, you're experimenting with Rousseau's tiger but gradually they become more and more absorbed into what's happening 
Um, and by by the end, the po- they are the poem. The you that we meet in the third line has kind of disappeared completely out of our frame. Yeah, which I love. You're right. We were we're really sucked in. It's a beautiful thing, and it kind of and that idea that the experimenting at the beginning, that word experimenting, explaining, gives us permission to experiment and explain, or kind of get get into it in that way. That idea of experimenting is a kind of flag for what's coming. Yeah, and then that that moves into imitating and copying. You know, it it gives imitating and copying uh, a permission. You know, sometimes you you might be criticised for imitating or copying someone, but certainly in this poem it feels like, well, that's how you learn, that's how you develop yourself is by absorbing what's round about you and taking that on and, you know, advancing it or using it in some way as a springboard. Which, you know, I guess in going back to the story in some ways, I don't think it's as, as strong as that in the story, but there is something about making something with your hands when you're following instructions that you kind of become totally entrenched in that idea and entrenched in what you're doing. And I think that's why people really love knitting in particular, the ones that I know that knit, because you have to pay attention, but you know, you're in it and you're out of it all at the same time, which I love. So yeah, there is something about that getting so getting really involved in what you're doing as a sort of form of permission as a, in a way, or seeing something else, the subconscious opening up, um, which I know is quite a big thing, but I think that's, it is what happens when we're writing or reading or doing something that's requiring a certain part of our brain. And I think back to the story, that's where we get the stitching the panels together and seeing yourself in that, in the same way that, you know, in Georgie's poem, painting a parrot, you're seeing yourself in it. And also in the story, that way that you have to observe acutely the thing that you are duplicating and copying. So it becomes the absolute focus of what you're doing. And you don't have a written pattern that you can go and have a cup of tea and come back to. You know, you find an appropriate place to break, which you might do if you're knitting. When you're copying something, you you, you know, you're, you're counting closely the stitches on the thing you're copying and then you're counting your own stitches and uh, you know it feels like really absorbing and I get that same sense in in this poem and not perfect matches neither of them are perfect matches your own version of something else which is really something that's considered valuable or important you can you're allowed to take it put your own spin on it make your own take of it which is really lovely so they're a lovely pair even though I think we pick them for different reasons once we've talked about them they have real connections I think these two pieces so um, thank you to Georgie and thank you to Alex for those beautiful beautiful things beautiful words is that us for today I think that's that's everything Thanks so much for um, having us in your ears this September. We hope you have a terrific month and a deep breathe after the festival season and that you'll join us at the Wigtown Book Festival later this month. You'll find out all the details about those events and things that you can log into on our newsletter. And that's at openbookreading.com.